Welcome to part two of HealthSystemCIO.com's quarterly chat with Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and Engagement with the Indiana Health Information Exchange. In this segment, Christian talks about the role data analytics can play in helping to curb opioid addiction, how IHI is connecting regional exchanges to ensure data follows the patient, and the importance of not just providing information to clinicians, but doing it appropriately and securely. One of the other things I want to get into as well is that we're hearing a lot of uh, talk now about social determinants, and yep. it seems like that's something that really has been going on for a while as far as you know, getting that really complete picture and going outside of some of the, uh, the traditional organizations or traditional healthcare facilities, and uh, I imagine that that's something that comes through in, in a lot of the work you do. Yeah, I mean, I, we have a lot of conversation about that. The, part of the issue is this is kind of new. And uh, the folks in San Diego uh, working with the exchange out there and their 211 program has done a pretty good job of creating some standards uh, around what those data standards are for the social determinants of health. Unfortunately, there's not a national standard yet. Mm-hmm. And so what we would create in Indiana might look a little bit different than what San Diego looks like, but we can inform ours with the work that they've done and others have done. But I absolutely agree. Putting all this data together, you know, trying to come up with what's the patient's socioeconomic standpoint, where do they live? Believe it or not, I've been shocked to realize that in Indianapolis, there are food deserts. Hmm. There are also pharmacy deserts. And I'm going, wait, that's not possible. And they said, yeah, depending upon what your socioeconomic status is, you may not have a car, and so you're dependent upon either your family or public transportation, or you walk. And if you're elderly or infirmed, that grocery store better be within a mile or so of your house, or you're not going to have access to those kinds of services. And so it's distressing to realize that in a town, you know, I think that is well-serviced as Indianapolis is, that we would have those things, but we do. And so we have to find those by using those social determinants. Health. So the other thing that we did, the Indiana chapter, you know, we had the Midwest Hymns Conference here in Indianapolis this year, was a precursor to that. The state of Indiana has, has created a, a, a data repository, not a clinical data repository, but a repository, in order to gather data from a lot of different places. They also have Medicaid claims and that kind of stuff. But they, they created 25 de-identified data sets, and they had a data challenge and let groups uh, in, in do a data-thon uh, around that trying to look at the data, what can you make out of that? And so what one group did, there was groups that looked at visualization of data and other ones was doing analytics and analysis of the data. And uh, there was a group of students from Purdue University, or actually from IUPUI, that took all of the data sets and they looked at the, the data around opioid consumption and then they, they overlaid that with another data set that was readily available around where are the treatment facilities in Indiana. And lo and behold, it was very apparent where there needed to be new resources put in order to help address services around treatment of opioid addiction. And so those are the things that we can truly have a very positive impact upon in using the data because using the data, the state of Indiana has opened up three or four additional service markets for uh, those kinds of services, which I think is absolutely what we need to do because Mm -hmm. we need to help prevent people becoming addicted. But once they are, we need to help them manage that addiction and live in a, a more productive way. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's something that thankfully we're starting to see more attention paid to in the industry is uh, battling the opioid epidemic and IT's role in it. And it's interesting you, you brought up uh, you know opening up new service markets because it, it's not just about moving data around, but having physical places too that serve areas. Oh, absolutely. The thing about it is, is that we have to be smart about how we do that, and we're we get smart by using the data. And the more data we can use, the better off we're going to be around those type of things. And so sometimes your gut tells you one thing, but the data tells you something else. And so you shouldn't always go with your gut. It's it's kind of like Ronald Reagan. You have to trust but verify. Trust mm. your gut but verify what you're thinking. Right. And uh, I know that there's a push to, to incentivize using things like clinical decision support and you know, e-prescribing just to give providers that information at the point of care. So you know, there's an awareness that somebody has an addiction or has already had medications and then just keep the providers better informed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that being able to use some of the data to tell them that you have a patient that has a propensity, you know, if they keep taking it, they very well could become addicted to it. But I think a lot of it is around, you know, I I told my wife, who's a, a critical care nurse, but she's been retired now for some time, is that I think we in the industry, we have to express some blame for this because one of the things, if I remember correctly years ago, is one of the things we gauged around quality and how we were providing good quality health care was pain control. And yeah. so were we a part of that because we wanted to, we thought we were providing better care, people had no pain. Well, as we told everybody we were doing that, the drug companies came up with better and better pain control mechanisms, but unfortunately they became more and more addictive. And I don't have any facts to back that up. That's just some thoughts, you know, conversation we were having over a cup of coffee the other other evening. Yeah. And as far as the patient-centered data home, uh, you brought that up before. Where do things stand there? Yeah, Yeah, I think, like I said, I've mentioned that before. And we're moving forward as fast as we possibly can with that. As I mentioned before, we have three regions of uh, HIEs in the country that are working together for this. And we actually have 22 HIEs that, that are, are signed up for this agreement. doesn't sound a whole lot, but they cover a big swath of the country. Well, we've got the heartland, which is Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, and eastern Tennessee, and Ohio. And then we have one that we call the Midwest. West, which is Oklahoma and Arkansas, and we have another one that just stood up in Missouri and Kansas, and then we have one out west that's Utah, Arizona, and Colorado, and it's now connecting up into California and, and Texas. Oh, wow. And, and, and so what we're doing is we've got those regions that are sharing information already, uh, and now we're connecting the regions. We've created the governance around how those regions are going to connect. And those four gateways are, are operational, and uh, we, we continue to work on that. We've got some areas that are exchanging data through the gateways. The Heartland Group, which we're part of, and we're also the gateway for the Heartland Group, is exchanging information with the, the Western Group. And so when those folks from Colorado come to the Indianapolis 500, if they they happen to wind up in the emergency room in Indianapolis, Mm -hmm. we can notify their primary care physicians and their HIE uh, back in Colorado. And so just to kind of give you an idea of what kind of transaction volumes we're talking about, which is really not a really good measure, but it's the only one I got right now, 
just doing ADTs alone path just in the Midwest region through seven HIEs in the last three months. And we, ourselves have exchanged over a quarter of a million ADT messages with the other six exchanges in the, the heartland. So that means we're on a path to exchange a million plus ADT messages to help inform care. Uh, and we're also starting to, we also are exchanging CCDs with several of those HIEs already. So that means if we get a patient in our region that we serve and we notify one of the other HIEs that we're exchanging data with, they will in turn send back to us a clinical summary or a CCD back to us that we can present to uh, that emergency room make available to them. So that's where the data follows the patient. And in my view, it needs to happen automatically. Somebody doesn't need to initiate, well, I see this patient has had care in X, Y, and Z. Let me go see if they've got anything that I could use. If there's something there, it needs to show up. If there's nothing there, they need to know that too. That's one of the things that in talking to a lot of physicians over the course of many, many years, if you can present that information to them in a manner and in a process that works within their workflow, they're more apt to use that uh, as part of that, that care process and their clinical decision making. Uh, if you're going to make it like an Easter egg hunt, they may or may not be able to do that unless it's uh, you know, a tough case and they, they need to know more information or it's, it's less emergent. So we continue to add members to the patient-centered data home. We're talking to many, many, many more uh, HIEs, particularly in the Northeast and in the Southeast and in the West, uh, about standing things up. Kelly Thompson, who's the CEO of Chic, has made uh, several trips out into the Washington State and Oregon area up in Montana to have some conversation with those folks up there and you know, kind of explain what we're doing and just trying to make it easy. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a burden on top of everything. You know, my opinion is the simpler we keep it, the more apt we are of getting people to use it. And if it's done in the background uh, and if it's done appropriately and securely with the patient needs in mind, it'll be beneficial. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we're gathering numbers and trying to see if we can do some research and analysis on top of that as well. Yeah. It's really been a lot of focus on setting the foundation for that, and uh, now it seems like going to you know focus on uh, uh, moving forward and, and building it. Yeah, I mean, I think think about it is we were just starting to get to a point. You can call it a tipping point. You can call it the tip of the iceberg. If you look at some of the stuff that's happening around the country about how HIEs have clinical data repositories, how they're you know helping to support some of the Medicaid Empower programs. Uh, there was one, I think it may been in Houston during the flood is the state Medicaid program has a database, uh, and I'm going to do this from memory, so I may not get all the details correct, so don't hold me to it, is that they know who are the most at-risk patients because people that are doing home dialysis that may or may not have a respirator in their home because, you know, state Medicaid is paying for that, so they know that. And so what they were trying to do is reach those through EMS, you know, through the emergency management services, those most vulnerable, most at-risk patients. And so they looked at the, you know, the state database that they keep, but the HIEs had better, more up-to-date information on those patients because of the data that they had in their clinical data repositories. 
so they can have a, a higher impact. And so how we work together as a community to have an impact, particularly on those that are most vulnerable, is, is really important. We've had some conversations with a local organization called MESH. They're basically funded by the five large health systems, and they help manage the emergency response because everybody's got the same issues, you know, beds, surge potentials, and those type of things. And so they needed somebody to coordinate those, and that's what MESH does. And they work with state planning. They work with state EMS. And we've worked out a way of providing access to data in an emergency or a, or a disaster or a crisis situation. And they, we've been invited to sit down with them with the uh, EMS planning that's going to take place in the not too far distant future to see what else we can do. You know, one of the things that I thought of a long time ago, if you remember when we had the disaster at the state fairgrounds when Sugarland was here, we had some hurricane force winds and the rigging blew down and unfortunately some people lost their lives and a lot of other people were injured. The difficulty the EMS had was to hook those families back together once the crisis were over. Yeah. There wasn't a good way of doing that, and uh, I think it's it's pretty easy to do, uh, and so we're working with Mesh to figure out a simple way of, in a secure way, because it has to be controlled. You can't have anybody walking up to anybody at EMS and say, okay, where did you take this patient? Yeah. You have to ensure that this person needs to know that information or should know that information, so you know, there's going to be some identity checking and that kind of stuff take place. And so sure. we, we just don't want somebody from the newspaper, you know, asking questions and right. getting information inappropriately. So that those are some of the policy and procedural things we're kind of working out with that. But we're just getting to the point now that we can use the information that we're gathering appropriately to have an impact upon how we take care of our community and how we respond in the case of crisis and emergency. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.